we have set the table, if you guys remember, with the big picture of marriage and one flesh sexuality. Like, if you recall, many weeks ago I had this strong sense in prayer from the Lord that before we get into the nooks and crannies of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 regarding the specific issues of sexual immorality, that God said, take some time. I, I mean, this is again a sense of prophet, prophetic sense from the Lord in prayer that the wise way to move forward would be to set the big picture for you guys on what's the whole point of human sexuality. Like, what's the, what's the forest before we get into the trees? So we've spent two messages specifically dealing with the forest of human sexuality, trying to remind ourselves, trying to see again that, that marriage and one flesh sexual union is supposed to be a picture in all of its ideal glory and all of its commitment and faithfulness and joy and pleasure and life-lastingness of Christ's love for the church, and the church embrace and love for Jesus. We've done two messages. Both the messages are called um, One Flesh and God's, One Flesh Union and God's Passion for Us. So if you haven't listened to those, again, I want to encourage you to listen to them. And if you have young people or teens or anybody who, who is moving into or is in the mire of human sexuality in our age, I, I just want to ask you to consider asking them to listen to these messages, those two messages specifically. Um, so having set the table now, we're going to now get into the nooks and crannies of 6 and 7 1 Corinthians, the actual specific issues that Paul deals with in this church. And we'll be referring, as we look at the trees, to the forest. Um, so I am seeing, yes, okay. So I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if there's, there's a couple of folks who are not here that I, I was hoping would be here um, as we get into this text this is such a big deal. You know, like, you, you, you just can't, you can't get away from the issue of our sexuality. Like, and again, all the disclaimers aside, like, I, I'm not going to be graphic by God's grace or going to try my best to be tactful as well as respecting the text. But this is just such a minefield for us all. We are sexual beings, and we can't change that. It's, and it, it's God's intention that we would be. Um, and so, this just has such deep relevance for all of us. And I know everybody is in different places. And so when I come to a passage like this and I come to my church family in this situation, there, there's a sense of, oh man, just be careful. Just be careful and be wise. And, um, and so I want to do that for you guys this morning and I need God's help to do that. <laughs> so would you guys please pray with me? Lord God, I ask you to help me to be careful with the hearts in this room. You have poured out your blood for the people in this room. They are not mine, they're yours. And I pray that through the Holy Spirit you would help me to be careful and to honor you in your word and to honor them and to do them good. Would you protect them from my error if there is error here, would you protect them from um, not paying attention to you speaking? Would you, through the Holy Spirit, strengthen us this morning to hear from you, Lord? Would you please anoint this message with your Spirit's presence where you desire to speak 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to start with a text. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is one of the hardest to understand mysterious passages in Scripture, particularly verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I think there's a way, like, we can kind of understand that intuitively, but when we try to, or at least for me, when I try to start to unpack it, it's like water through my hands. Like, Man, that just strikes me as true, that sexual sin is a sin against something internal. But when I try to identify it, I try to grab it, I try to understand what's, it's just mysterious, you know? It's like trying to explain music to somebody. Like, why those sounds together all work and do this thing in me. Paul says it, though, right here. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What is he talking about? Why? What does that mean? Well, I think we can see from Paul and the Bible and truth that he's not saying other sins do not affect the Bible. If we just think in common sense ways, if a person gets really, really drunk, <laughs> they sin against their liver. They sin against their heart, possibly. They sin against their brain. If they, if they get in a street fight, and they bloody up their hands with their violent actions. They sin against their hand, <laughs> you know. Um, there is a way that we can sin against our body in other ways. But, but he means something very unique here that's true. He, he contrasts sexual sins with other sins in this way. We just have to admit. He says it right here. Other sins are outside the body. But sexual sins are against the body. So if he doesn't mean like other sins don't happen on the body, they can't affect the body, we know he doesn't mean that. What is he talking about? Well, remember what we've been talking about for weeks here. That sexuality and sexual activity, it portrays something and does something very unique and particular and powerful that nothing else does in all of creation. It creates union. It creates union. Sexuality is like a bonding agent. It creates union. It takes you and someone else and makes you one. And this whole passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is full of union language. Remember, a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and the two become one, one body. And he who unites himself to the Lord is what? One spirit with him. And even before Paul says those things, he says, don't you know that we are what? We are members, we are the body of Christ. Union language. 
Shall I take Jesus' body, Paul says, which is us, and unite it with a prostitute? That spiritual union in a graphic way, Jesus is saying, if you go to a prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you because you're one with him, and because you're going to be one with the prostitute, you're making Jesus one with a prostitute. Is that what I should do? See all this union language, this, this incredible idea that's different than other activity in human life where two things become one through human sexuality. Sexual union, we've been saying for weeks, not only creates a union of a man and a woman as one body, but it uniquely images the union between Christ and his church in that one flesh union of man and woman. Sexual activity is union-making activity. It bonds us with another. And, and the bond is experienced in very real ways. The bond happens in God's accounting. He says it is so, but we experience the effects of that bond physically, emotionally, spiritually, this is God's plan. Before the fall, this was God's plan for human sexuality. He designed our person, you, me, body, mind, and spirit, emotions, everything to help this oneness, this union that takes place in sexual activity, cohes, come together. He designed us he, he designed sexual activity to draw in and churn up our affections, our sense of intimacy, our sense of safety, our sense of security, our sense of pleasure, our sense of belonging, our sense of loyalty and commitment and enjoyment and in ways nothing else does and then center them towards the person that we experience sexual activity with. He designed our natures and our faculties to come alongside this, this principle he's decreed that when a man leaves his father and mother, he will come to his wife and the two will become one. All of our emotional, spiritual, physical faculties are drawn into this decree that he has made. And remember again, why did he do this? He did this because sexual activity is supposed to be a kind of message to us about his union with us, about his love for us, about his longing for us, about our security with him, about our safety with him, about his commitment to us. Far from being smutty and vulgar, human sexuality is supposed to be and is in its intention, in its God-designed intention, holy and beautiful and a miraculous, amazing poem about Christ and his bride. But here is the tremendously important thing to remember from the passage today. This union, this bonding between the two in sexual activity, listen, it happens no matter who we bond with or when we bond with them. If we unite with a prostitute, or we unite and dwell on pornography, or in ways outside the conditions of marriage, it's not as if God says, oh, okay, it's not in my guidelines, so I won't 
let the drawing and the togetherness and the cohesion and the glue, it won't take place. No. (laughs) Bonding, oneness, it still works its work through our human faculties. See, God decided to give us real authority here because he wants our choices to have real meaning. He gave us real responsibility and real power in this so that we could really love him with this and not just be robots who only did exactly, you know. This means we have the power to use our sexuality rightly or wrongly. We are sexual beings by God's decree and when we use our sexuality wrongly, we sin against this part of us that is made for union. Union-making capabilities are unique to sexuality. Let me try to explain it this way. If we are in one body in a union of marriage and then we sin, we damage the one-body union of our marriage by corrupting it with a foreign invasion of sorts. A new illegitimate but actual union is created where the purity of the one union should be. And it's a corruption of that union that we've made with our spouse. And in this way, we sin against our own body, Paul says. Because our body is one with our spouse. If we're not married, we don't have a sexual union yet and then we sin sexually we introduce an illegitimate but actual oneness of body that is a perversion of all that god made our bodies to experience in one union exclusivity faithfulness commitment they're not there when it's not existing in the marriage relationship we take our one body potential and we unite it with some one it was not yet meant to be united with And in this way, we sin against our own body. When Paul is saying we sin against our bodies, he's speaking specifically of our union capacity, (laughs) our our oneness abilities. And that oneness ability is very unique to human sexuality. If this is hard for you guys to understand, it's hard for about every theologian I've ever read to understand and to put into words. But one theologian puts it this way. Paul is not saying that only porneo, which is sexual immorality, damages the body. He's not saying that that's the only thing that damages the body, (coughs) but rather that only porneo, that is sexual morality, establishes a one flesh union. Listen to this again. Paul is not saying that only porneo damages the body. He's not saying that only sexual morality damages the body, but rather that only sexual morality establishes a one flesh union that is against the body. Sexual sin is against the body because it is uniquely body joining. It is uniquely, therefore, body defiling. It happens inside us in a way that other sins don't happen inside us. 
And we experience the effects of that sin in all kinds of different ways. All that stuff that's in us that was meant to allow us to experience one flesh union, affection, pleasure, a sense of belonging, acceptance, commitment, it all gets torqued around. It all gets torn and mangled in the various ways that either we can sin sexually or we can be sinned against sexually. And sometimes that sinning happens in ways that we're just not even aware of. It just mixes stuff up inside us and afterwards we're like, whoa, I'm really, I'm, I'm really smashed around. I didn't even know what I was getting in, involved in, but my emotions and my heart, and it's all just torn up. What happened? What the heck happened to me? And God is saying, you, you did something really unique inside you because there's a unique union capability. There's a unique desire you have to be one with somebody else, and, and you've, you've taken it into a place it was not meant to go. You put diesel gas fuel in an ethanol engine. <laughs> and, and you can't do that without feeling the effects of it. Because it, it was made to be a, a great running engine, by the way. Like, it's a beautiful, amazing engine. But you put ethanol in there. It's a diesel engine. But there's another way that we sin in a unique way when we sin sexually that Paul tries to help us understand this whole situation with. Remember that that union, that bonding, right, that takes place between a man and a woman is supposed to image our union with Christ, right? So watch what Paul does here. Look what he says in 19. Let's put that back up. 18, 19, please, Pam. There you go. Without missing a beat, he goes, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually moral person sins against his own body. And then right away he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He goes straight back to union language. But this time, the union language is reflecting the union between us and God. We saw him do that in, in verses 16 and 17. A man will leave his mother, and the two will become one flesh. 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See him putting together our union with man and woman, together with Christ's union with the church. Then look, he does it again in, here in 18 and 19. A sexual moral person commits his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You can't separate human sexuality from God's desire to portray his intimate longing for passionate union with us. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because whether you're married or not, like we've said before, God is trying to tell you something wonderful through your sexuality about his desire for you, his longing for you, his union with you, and his desire to be united with you. <clears throat> but Paul lays it down this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So again, he's not introducing some new idea different than union when he brings this into the discussion, this idea of temple. It's not like, oh, we've been talking about union with Christ between man and woman, and now we're going to talk about the temple. He, he's still talking union language. 
spiritual union between Christ and church, God and people, spirit and temple. You. What is the temple? What is the temple? You remember the temple? Remember the tabernacle from the journey in the wilderness? The tent of meeting that Moses set up temporarily that did all the same things that the beautiful temple that Solomon built did functionally. It didn't look nearly as glorious, but it was just as wonderful. Why? Because the same God was coming to unite himself with his people in it. The temple or the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, it is the place where God comes down to dwell with his people. It's a picture of union. It's a picture of intimacy. Christ coming to meet his bride, entering into the holy place to be with his people. Without getting, you know, dirty and sordid, Sexuality is a picture of that. The husband and the wife come together for union. This temple for the Jews was the most sacred, holy place imaginable because it was the place where God revealed his glory to Israel and where he was to dwell with them permanently, forever. And in Leviticus 9 and 10, we see one of the most powerful pictures of the holiness and the glory and the reverence that this temple was to be held in. In Leviticus 9, (coughs) the Israelites are sending up the temporary temple called the Tent of Meeting, the tabernacle. And God gives all kinds of instructions about goats and bulls and rams, the peace offerings, the blood offerings, all these things that they were supposed to take care and do God's way. God gave them his instructions. This is my temple. This is how it is to be used. This is what you're supposed to do with it. Do this with it. And so Aaron and his sons obeyed those instructions. I won't go through all of Leviticus 9, but I believe it's the first time that we see them going through these ways of God regarding the temple to do all that God commanded to prepare the temple for God's presence. And Leviticus 9.5 says, and they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, that is the, the temple. They're bringing all the sacrifices and all the accoutrements of the sacrifices to the temple. And all the congregation drew near union language and stood before the Lord, Yahweh. And Moses says, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. Why did he command them to do that? That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Union language. God coming near, us coming near. Then Moses said to Aaron, to the people, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering." and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord commanded. 
So what's needed for that union, for that glory to dwell in this point is atonement, right? The blood of bulls and goats and sacrifices. And then in verse 22 of Leviticus 9, it said, Then Aaron, after doing all of the prescriptions of atonement that God had commanded, Aaron has, has made atonement for the people, just as God commanded. It says this, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed all the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And a fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The temple was cared for. It was honored. The ways of the Lord were followed. And the whole point of that was so that the Lord in his holiness would be pleased to come down and dwell and manifest his presence there. This is union language. God coming to be with his people, his people drawing near to him. The very next, it might be the very next day, might even be later that night. I don't know. But the very next chapter, Leviticus 10, after this beautiful scene of God's glory, is one of the most sad and fearful scenes in all of Scripture. The same temple that just was filled with God's glory that allowed the people to draw near. The same fire that came and consumed the sacrifices of atonement to confirm that atonement had been made among the people and that God was now dwelling with them is treated very differently and responds very differently. Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and they put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. See, they, they took God's plan, and they decided to disregard it. They saw the excitement, and the thrill, and the glory of all that the people had experienced, perhaps the day before. And they said, oh, Wow! We want that experience. We want that glory. We want that excitement. We want that thrill. We'll just go get it. We won't have to pay attention to God's ways. We'll just go in there and get it. Let's put some stuff together. Was there, you know, they did some things with sacrifices and offerings. I, I don't know what they did. But they took, uh, they took Aaron's censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it as if God was some computer machine that would just respond arbitrarily to their whims and their desires and their decisions about how to deal with the temple. And it says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God said, my temple is holy. Don't treat it as a contemptible thing. My glory is to dwell there. Esteem it highly. But these young men decided they didn't need to pay attention to any of that. They wanted the enjoyment and the thrill that came from the presence of God. But they wanted to treat God like a tool as opposed to honor him and treat him as holy. Folks, the temple's gone. God doesn't have a temple anymore. There's no place to go and make burn sacrifices and, and, and do the proper stuff with the goats and the lambs and the, or to do the wrong stuff with the incense and the ashes. It's gone. God's temple's not on earth anymore. He just has you. You're his temple now. Your body is his temple. You are the place where his glory dwells. Your body, with all of its beauty and all of its frailty, with all of its youth and all of its age, with all of its vigor and all of its wrinkles, doesn't matter to God. Animal skins and cyanide. <laughs> beautiful stones and gold domes of Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. It's the glory of God that dwells that makes the temple valuable and sacred and holy. And you are his temple. And you're no less holy because you don't have the blood of goats and rams sprinkled on you. It might be appropriate to say that the holiness is only greater. Because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have the blood of God the Son upon you. And because of that, you are holy. Holy. And the blood makes you holy forever. And because of that, God is pleased to put his spirit in you. To dwell in you forever. so that you might contain his glory and project his glory with your life and your sexuality and reveal to the world that God is holy and glorious and good. Four application points here. We are in a culture that preaches to men and women 
that men and women are the authority on sexuality. And our culture preaches it with a volume and a boldness and a zeal and a dedication that is as passionate as anything that is being proclaimed in the world. And I don't think that that is a coincidence. Satan knows that human sexuality is supposed to be this most beautiful, most holy, most sacred picture of God's love for his people and the creation being faithful to its creator. He knows that inside our heart, our sexuality is well connected with our holy place in our hearts of Jesus Christ because it, it sings about union, union with God. And so he's gone after it and the world's gone after it to desecrate the temple and help everybody in the world to blaspheme the holy place inside us and offer strange fire like Nadab and Abihu. But God knows how the human body, <laughs> including its sexuality, is made. And he knows what it is made for. It is made for his glory, for his radiance, for the revealing of himself. And when we reject his intention for how we were made and what we were supposed to be, we hurt ourselves. We hurt the gift in us, our affections, our loyalties, our commitments, our desires, and we badly damage the gift in other people with whom we sin sexually. And so Paul says, flee. Fear the Lord and flee. You will only hurt yourself. Don't negotiate with sexual immorality. Don't wonder about it. Don't be like a deer caught in its headlights. Don't pause. Get out quickly. Sexual activity is a bonding agent. You don't put crazy glue in your hand and just wait around to see what it will be like. You know? You, you might do that with other substances. There are other sins that are easier to just wonder about. <laughs> but sexuality is itself crazy glue. And so Paul says, if, if, if you're not using it with care, if, if you're not using it in the right way, you're going to have a terrible mess on your hands. Don't open up that bottle. Flee. Oh, man. I, there's so much more I, I, I could say. You know, I want to qualify this with all kinds of like, sexuality is good and it's, it's okay to have, you know, when you're a young person, you start having crushes on people. Like, it's natural. It's normal. You know, it is. Romantic ideas are beautiful and gifts before marriage. They can be, they can lead us and, and you're made for that. And so, but maybe, hopefully, if you've been listening to the last few messages and you, you know that the evangelical church has been trying to repent for a few years of Victorian prudence, you know, when it comes to sexuality, maybe you can bear to hear this morning, Flee. It's crazy glue. <laughs> Don't wonder about pornography. 
don't pick up the romance novel to thumb through and find that particular chapter that might have something that'll get you going. It's crazy glue. It'll hurt you. Trust the Lord, number two, in his promises. I, I, I could never have fought sexual sin with the degree of success I, I've had. And, and I'm, not, I'm not perfect in this. But, but when I was a young man before I married Jen, something changed significantly in my battle with sexual purity that, that I discovered, that I hadn't discovered before. I discovered not only how to respond to the warnings of God, flee, which had limited power in my life, I, I discovered that what was maybe just as important, if not more important, well, I, I don't want to put them up against each other. The warnings are important and given by God to heed. But I wasn't using the promises of God. I, I was only fighting my sexual sin with the warnings and the fears. I wasn't using the promises. And uh, something happened in my 20s where I, God allowed me to start to see how important it was to hold on to his promises. Psalm 145 became a life psalm for me when it comes to sexual purity or immorality and just battling. And in that psalm, later in the psalm, and you can look it up for yourself, I don't know these specific verses, but I know the verses, David says this is the most beautiful things. He says, the Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him. At the proper time, he opens his hand and fulfills the desires of every living thing. And, you know, this 26, 27-year-old man full of desires that God had put in my heart for sexual union. And I had no wife. But I had girls I was dating who were, where, where things could happen that weren't helpful <laughs> and constructive. And I was fighting that. And it was very difficult but then I had those promises come into my life where God said, I gave you these desires, Albert. And I'm not going to give you the time and the date or the way. You know, in my mind, it could have been a Mack truck and I go to heaven and whatever those desires are meant to point to gets fulfilled beyond my wildest dreams. I just knew that God is a desire fulfiller. That he's not an eternal frustrator. That he doesn't put things in me to just tease me. And, and I don't know, like I said, I, I, I could, it wasn't like I felt like the Spirit was allowing me to put conditions. Okay, God, then you'll fulfill my desire this way at this time. No, 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 no. God just said, believe me. At the proper time, I will open my hand and fulfill your desires. And it did make me dream about marriage and sex. <laughs> and, and not, you know, not in a graphic, awful way, but in, in that hope, gosh, I, I, this would be great. <laughs> I could find her and we could be one and be intimate. And, and it was so great just to be able to, in the midst of the temptation, run to the promise and not just flee the warning. But I really did have that sense that I knew, and this, this was important, I want to qualify this, that I, I couldn't tell God anything about how he was going to fulfill that desire. It could have been a Mack truck sending me to heaven to fulfill my desires in ways that we can't even imagine with pleasures and joys and ecstasies beyond our reckoning. But I just knew that God was interested in fulfilling my desires, that he cared about them, 
that he had a plan. I knew that God was interested in fulfilling my desires, that he cared about them, and that he had a plan. So if you're single and you're struggling like I did with sexual desire, know that God cares about your desires and he has a plan. I can't tell you what that is, but he's not interested in eternally frustrating you. He's interested in you fearing him and he's interested in him opening his hand and satisfying your desires at the proper time so that your youth is renewed like the eagles and you're filled with joy. Three, hope in the Lord and in his mercy. There is no sin that God cannot handle apart from rejecting him in his Holy Spirit in, in, a, in a final conclusive way. We can say no to Jesus and die saying no to Jesus. And I won't say that God will help you with that sin. I think that is the, as far as I understand it, the ultimate blasphemy of the Spirit is to reject the witness of his Spirit about his Son. But barring that, there is no sexual sin that God cannot handle. I have seen folks dedicated to pornography. I have seen folks intimate with prostitutes pulled out of those ditches and set back on the path. I have. I've, they've been in my care groups, in my small groups. I've pastored them. I've seen men involved and deeply attracted to other men, forgiven and changed and cleansed and be made to stay faithful to wives and lead children. I've been pastored by some of those men. And I've seen those men start churches and lead them to this day. There's nothing that God can't fix about this stuff. That's why Jesus did all the terrible suffering that he went through. That's why he went through all the terrible suffering he went through. So that he would be able to fix and heal and forgive and cleanse and make right again what was made so terribly wrong by us. That's the whole point of the gospel. So if you're in here this morning and you're thinking, God can't forgive me for this, God can help me out of this. Well, then I would just tell you, Christianity is meaningless. That's the whole point of Christianity, is forgiveness and power to change. Do you understand? Like, if you're in here this morning thinking, God can't help me with this, he can't forgive me with this, he can't help me out of this, then Christianity has no meaning. That is its whole point is to bring you God's forgiveness and to bring you God's spirit that you might walk with him. You might as well be swimming in a swimming pool of fresh water, exclaiming there's no way I'll ever be able to have a drink. as say that God can't help me with this. He can't clean me. He can't strengthen me. It, it is literally the point of Jesus. So please know that, and if you're struggling, talk to somebody who really loves Jesus 
and who will really love you, who will proclaim his forgiveness and his help to you again and again. And I know people who, who will do that for you. So if you don't know anybody, come and talk to me and I'll help you get there. But we need each other to hope in God's mercy. We need to help each other do that. Fourth, remember the greater message about sexuality. Kind of coming back around to the beginning. Sexuality contains with it a message greater than itself. It is meant to tell us about something more wonderful than simply itself. And it is wonderful. It can be wonderful. And I know it can be wonderfully traumatizing too. But in its pointing power, it is meant to tell us about something so much better than itself, which we've talked about again and again, but I want to close with this. It's meant to tell us about God's longing to be with us. We are his bride. The strong sexual drive and passion by which one man is attracted to a woman is meant to tell us something about God's non-sexual but passionate desire for us. A woman's desire to be united with a husband and respected by him and loved by him and sacrificed by him and be protected by him and be cared for by him, be listened to, is meant to tell us something about who Jesus is to be to us, the one who protects us and covers us and stays with us with much more intensity and desire and zeal than a human husband could ever. And so, just know again you are his bride. You are holy in him. You are his very temple. He lives in you. You are united and one with his spirit. He desires you. He longs for you. He is jealous for you. And I, and I know we've said this a lot in the last month, but I, I really think it is God speaking these things to us. I, I I don't think, you remember last week what happened. Some of you were here with Mike Christ when he preached to us. And, and I kind of went off after the message because Mike said all these things. And I, we didn't do any planning on, on what he would preach about or why he would preach Acts 16. He wanted to talk to us essentially about Lydia and the mission that he's going out to Zambia. But he ended up preaching to us about God's love for his bride. And he spent so much time saying all the things we've been talking about. And it, it just occurred to me, this is just a miracle. God is so committed to this little church to say to her, I love you. You are my bride. I have betrothed you to myself. I long for you. I'm jealous for you. You're holy to me. I'm jealous for you. You're mine. Hosea 2 the Lord says to Israel, I will betroth you to myself in tenderness, he says, and in faithfulness. And God says that to you, church. I have betrothed myself to you in tenderness and in faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I'm not used to hearing that message in my heart over and over again. I, I don't think I'm done with needing to hear that message over and over again in my heart. I don't think I'm used to that now and I can just move on. 
I don't know about you, but I need to hear God say to me again and again, I betrothed myself to you in faithfulness and in tenderness. I long for you. I'm jealous for you. I want you. I want to be with you. You are my bride. I am full of desire and passion for you. I don't know, I, I could do an analysis on why it's so hard for me to hear that. Things inside me and theology from outside me. A lot of which is true, but, but I don't think this idea is something that has done the job it needs to do in my heart. <laughs> and so I, I, I think for whatever reason, God knows that about many of you. And so he's trying to say it again and again and again. I love you in tenderness and in faithfulness. I've committed myself to you forever. You are my bride. I am your husband redeemer. Could I ask the band to come up, Michelle, particularly? Um, and get going. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together and remember this husband redeemer of ours who has gone as far as he can go to pursue us and purchase us.